Um, everyone, can I have your attention, please, just for a moment? Thank you very much for your patience. Um, I think you know what this is about. The office manager. The decision has been reached, and it is... Eric Bischoff! No oh, way! I cannot believe it. The guy is a wanker! Yep, OK, OK. I know he's not a popular decision, um, but I'm afraid the board felt that... John Laurinaitis! No, no way! I do not believe it. That guy is a wanker! Yep, 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 I hear you. But uh, it was a close call. It was between... Um, Mick Foley and John Hurd. Oh, no way! Look at him. He must be joking. And we decided fairly and squarely that Mike Adamley. No, no way! Look at him. He must be joking. I personally would have preferred William Regal. Oh no! But after a lot of discussion, uh, particularly with my uh, senior colleagues, um, we did feel that... The anonymous Raw general manager. Oh, no, I do realise that uh, most of you would have preferred... Nigel McGuinness. Oh, no, not no, him. He said... Nigel McGuinness. Oh, no. <laughs> No, oh, no, not Yeah, but I don't have to say any more about it. Uh, but at least we can look on the bright side. It could have been worse. It could have been page here. Hockta, hockta, hockta. Let me tell you something. 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 Well, let me tell you something. 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 Let me tell you something, man. Greetings, Grandpa, and welcome to. An original recipe episode of Let Me Tell You Something, the podcast that was supposed to allow me to keep my mind astray from the modern day context of wrestling, and instead discuss a facet, an idea, a concept, a person, a movement, a period of time within the world and history of professional wrestling, and discuss it, and just try and take it apart within a reasonable length of time for a podcast. I'm your co-host, Lorcan Mullen, and with me as always is the Shane McMahon to my Daniel Bryan, the Stephanie McMahon to my Mick Foley, the match with The Undertaker to my Teddy Long, Mr. Simon Cross. Simon, how you doing today, mate? I'm doing grand. I'm doing grand. Looking forward to this one. Is this our first LMTYS of the year? I'm trying to yes. Back now. Yeah. We, uh, our scheduling makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're not fully in control of our scheduling, as we've alluded to a lot on previous episodes. So So you're saying if we can't keep control of things, maybe we need some sort of figure to control our behaviour. Yes. A figure with some authority, perhaps? Perhaps indeed. What are we talking about today, Simon? As luck would have it, our theme for today's LMTYS episode is authority figures. Now, that has been a constant in pro wrestling, in the modern context, really, forever. Obviously, I don't have a great knowledge of the history of pro wrestling, but it seems to me in general that the idea was that the local promoters were the authority figures, Mm. and it was played less as a... Well, the, the kayfabe was more important. And I suppose in... Those territory days, the authority figure of wrestling was the National Wrestling Alliance. Yeah. Who would decide who would be the champion backstage and front of stage would be the commissioning authority of professional wrestling. So there was no one single figurehead, essentially. They were more like a boxing federation, basically, weren't they, really? Yes. In kayfabe terms. Yes, and it's funny when you point that out because... I guess that the authority figures in boxing at that time were high-profile promoters, although they would be the ones that are having to work with the commissioning authorities. As you say, they don't have all 100% authority. So the closest figure to that in real sports now is Dana White, I suppose. Yeah. Who is both the promoter, but also makes clear that he's like the final decision-maker of sorts. Although, again, they are having to deal with like the Nevada... State Athletic Commission. Yeah. Because God knows Dana White made it clear at certain points that there were certain referees working in the UFC that he did not approve of. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. It, well, and obviously, Dana's doing like this cross promotion thing as well with slap fight. You know, I, I think that's where he gets to live out more of his wilder. He's more unconstrained. That's pure Dana because obviously there's less. Well, there's less rules. <laughs> Yeah, but for as long as I've been aware of wrestling and followed wrestling, there have been authority figures making the matches and making the decisions in most of the major promotions. The original version of that for me, of course, was Jack Tunney, president of the WWF. And I think he was an on-screen character from 1985 to about 1995, I think it was. Mm. They really played up like that presidential element to it, that he would be giving orders in a manner filmed similarly to when the president makes a public address from the Oval Office. Yeah. And there'll be an American flag behind him and so forth. And and Jack Tunney had that kind of old man authority to him. The Tunneys were actually Canadian promoters for the WWF. That's what they'd always been. They'd been part of the wrestling scene in Canada. And then I think when Vince brought them up, Jack Tunney got to be an on-screen authority figure. Okay. You see, in all that classic era of wrestling, you've got, like, contract signings between Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant, or Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior, Bret Hart and Yokozuna, Lex Luger and Yokozuna, all of those things, announcing who will be the person to challenge Ric Flair for the world title at WrestleMania 8, making decrees when certain wrestlers had overstepped the line, or sometimes having to clean up some real loose storylines that have come as a result of someone leaving a promotion like him. Yeah. Suspending Ravishing Rick Rude indefinitely for saying rude comments about the big boss man's mother. <laughs> Rick Rude had just left the promotion. There's an inconsistency in what is allowed to fly. In the- I was going to say, I was going to say, standards are not being upheld. Yes. But he was always, he always had that air of neutrality to him, really. And he was so used so sparingly that I remember like one of my, most vivid memories of the wrestling that I... I can still probably recite the whole thing that happens from start to finish is the whole Bret Hart-Jerry Lawler SummerSlam 93 match where Lawler comes out with crutches and an ice pack on his knee. And it's the most chaotic thing I'd ever seen in WWF at that time. It was like some proper southern wrestling chaos going on. Like proper Memphis coming to the WWF. And when Jerry Lawler's revealed that he didn't need the crutch at all, smashes it over the back of Bret Hart, leaves him laying, walks off with Doink the Clown, who'd been his substitute, his court jester for the match. <laughs> and as they're about to go through the entrance with the red, white, and blue frills on it, Jack Tunney suddenly emerges. So it's like, oh, this guy can actually do something. Yeah. All the other officials, they're basically just there to break things up, stop things happening, but not actually to... Enforce... Like, laws. They can't reverse decisions or whatever. And so, Jack Tunney, you see him arguing with Jerry Lawler, saying, people pay to see you wrestle Bret Hart! And then he goes to Howard Finkel, and Howard Finkel announced that if Jerry Lawler doesn't fight now, he'll be banned from the WWF for life, I think is something. <laughs> then, so that, so it's like, it was a proper, like, oh shit, Jack Tunney never comes out. That's how big a deal this yeah. is, like... The few times Jack Tunney was involved in things was sort of like when he turned up at Tuesday night in Texas to watch firsthand the Hulk Hogan Undertaker rematch after Ric Flair had cost him the title. And of course, Undertaker had basically broken Hulk Hogan's neck as far as what he was telling people backstage afterwards. <laughs> the Jack Tunney was there and then he got caught up in the chaos. And so because it was all screwy again, he, he vacates it again. And then at the 92 Royal Rumble, the winner's going to get the title. And he actually... Like, comes out with the belt before the match and announces it. Gets a few boos. And what I love as well is that after he gives the microphone back to Fink, Fink says, thank you, Mr. President. Like, he's addressed as Mr. President on screen. It's the little things, isn't it? Yeah. But it's fair to say that Jack Tunney was never a charisma uh, machine. But that's fine. He didn't need to be anything other than just a figure of impartiality, I suppose. Yeah, the way he was presented... You're right. He's a plot device. He's M. Yeah. Well, M does have charisma, but that's different. Not in the early films. No, no. But Judy... My, well, this is generational. My, my M, Judy Dench, does. Oh, my, she's my <laughs> M as well. She became M in Goldeneye, and that was the first Bond film I saw at the cinema. <laughs> Keep your hands up! We can both have... T- t- fellas, you can both have me. Fellas, you're both old and irrelevant. <laughs> Have you seen who's apparently going to be the new M? No. 
Daisy May Cooper. Um, uh. I just right there, Bond. Now you've got to, you got to, you got to reel it in now, like. <laughs> Don't be going playing silly burgers now, Bond. <laughs> anyway, I've I've cooked up some fish fingers if you want one. <laughs> Some bird's eye potato waffles. <laughs> Do you like Christmas... Oh, Finder's crispy pancakes. <laughs> Anywho. Anyway. I'm sure the Americans who listen to this love that they'll just... <laughs> oh, Google's a thing now, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then Jack Tunney was replaced by Gorilla Monsoon. Who, and it always made sense because Gorilla Monsoon was always bitching about, like rules not being followed and everything. It was like, well, finally, you got to put your money where your mouth is, is. Monsoon. You do it, then. (laughs) And Monsoon obviously had, again, had that authority. He'd been the voice of wrestling for so many people for like 10 years. Wasn't there a scene, and it was one of the few times Vader, what got to be Vader in WWF, was when he battered Monsoon. And everyone is like, what are you doing? Yeah. And it was because it was Gorilla Monsoon and he had his experience in wrestling. He could work in it yeah. more easily. Just Jim Cornette desperately tugging on Vader's arm like, stop, stop, what, stop this? <laughs> and again, because it was like so rarely done, yeah, it was a big deal. So in between, whilst he was out injured, they had Roddy Piper as the interim president. So it was like the start of it moving towards a more active participant of wrestling. Yeah. But then, really, within like the Attitude Era, there was no key figure of authority except for when Sergeant Slaughter became Commissioner Slaughter. Oh, yeah. He had been given some sort of authority role back in like 1992 and nothing had really built like he was going to be Jack Tunney's lieutenant. Again, he could get more physically involved in it. Well, I like that. The fact he's rewarded for treason <laughs> with a promotion only in wrestling. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's true. It would be like making Edward Snowden the Secretary of State or something. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, Sergeant uh, Commissioner Sla- Slaughter, as we should say, uh, that's one of my first, not one of my first memories, but one, now I look at wrestling chronologically, that's one of the first times I can recall him having consistent fawns in his side, that being DX. There's that famous match where they have to wrestle each other. And they just make it a complete and utter farce. Yeah. They had Sergeant Slaughter wrestle Triple H in a boot camp match at their DX pay-per-view. It was literally called Degeneration X, that pay-per-view. That wasn't in your house, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was like maybe the last in your house. But by that point in your house, it had become three hours long instead of the two hours that it had previously been. Always the figures that it had gone for have been figures that sort of made sense. Roddy Piper was eccentric, but he also... You could buy him as, like, the sheriff that's going to clean up the town. Similar to the role that Steve Austin took, I suppose, when he became that figure. Well, obviously, Roddy, I mean, not only did he have the uh, wrestling pedigree, but obviously they live, you yeah. know. <laughs> well, I mean, that's also something they blatantly reference in the match that he has with Goldust at WrestleMania 12. Yeah. But then really post-Sergeant Slaughter is when it all started going a bit all over the place and there was never that much consistency except for the few instances where they were yeah and that's because wrestling itself was just this week-to-week chaos <laughs> yeah not just on screen but also in vince mcmahon's patience and willingness to keep storylines going or or not mm. and, and obviously you always have vince's authority so then there were so many layers of authority on top of one another because, you know, he makes sure Michael's the commissioner. Yeah. But he never goes off screen during that whole time. And then he fires Sean as the commissioner. But then Sean comes back as the commissioner at one point. And it went all over the place. Like, he had certain... I don't know. It was all sorts of randomness. That's a memory test for us, really. Can we go through now, like, chronologically, Ooh. the authority figures within wrestling since then? So you had Sergeant Slaughter gave it to Shawn Michaels. Shawn Michaels would come and go with it. Yeah. And then, but he finally announced Mick Foley as the commissioner. Yeah. Then Mick Foley got sacked and was replaced by William Regal. Yes, that was with the Jericho uh, feud, where Jericho pissed in his tea. 
Then we had the WWF versus the Alliance and Regal switched to the Alliance. So they brought Mick Foley back very briefly. Yeah. Um, Mick Foley basically shat all over the entire Invasion storyline and then quits. And who was brought in as the commissioner after that? Well, it was then it was Vince McMahon and Ric Flair, wasn't it? Yeah, because that was like the whole co-owner thing which yeah. um, culminated with Rick losing that at WrestleMania 18 as a condition of his match with The Undertaker. No, it wasn't because of The Undertaker. They actually had a match with each other where someone interfered and turned heel. Oh! Vincent, Vincent Flair. Crap. No, yeah, 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 yeah. No, he was suspended. He was suspended from being co-owner until yeah. he fought Undertaker at WrestleMania because yeah. he was being too erratic trying to get to Taker after Taker battered his son, Ann Arn Anderson. But that existed essentially to do the roster split. Then after that happened... Oh, yeah, because there's that great draft episode yeah, where Ric yeah, Flair yeah. just keeps wrong-footing McMahon and you just see him... Because Kurt Angle's giving him, like, strategy because, like, Rick will never choose those guys. Rick will never choose those guys. So you choose that... And then it's all falling apart in Vince's office. That episode also has one of the few instances where you truly get a sense of, like, the petty Vince McMahon of real life. Yeah. That he'll do things to spite people, you know, like him firing CM Punk on his wedding day. Him moving JR to SmackDown live on TV. Yeah, him giving Dean Ambrose, like, a $200 final payoff or something. That's in the moment during the draft where Ric Flair drafts Bubba Ray Dudley yeah. in the plans of getting Devon Dudley and Vince just uses his next draft pick just to draft Devon Dudley to yeah. fuck with them. That's something that Vince would do in real life if this was a real thing that happened. Yeah, but we got Reverend Devon out of that. So it wasn't a complete loss. <laughs> and Deacon Batista. That is true. The, the fantastically well-built-up Deacon Batista. Yeah. You know, all those vignettes and everything that introduces <laughs> everyone doing so well. Oh... Anyway, anywho, <laughs> from there we had then the general manager started happening. Yeah, so it was Eric Bischoff for Raw, Stephanie for SmackDown, and Eric would always try and find ways of like screwing over Steph and preying on her yeah. inexperience. And that was them trying to recreate the Monday Night Wars insofar as them like signing people from each side constantly, or Eric dressing as a priest for Chuck and Billy's wedding. That was one of those great moments of wrestling, and and so. Stephanie goes the next July because Vince beats her up. Vince beats his own daughter up in an I Quit match. Is she replaced by Paul Heyman at that point? Or is there someone between Stephanie and Paul Heyman? It's Kurt before Paul, isn't it? Because Kurt's broken neck. Yes, he's going around in a wheel. He basically is dressing like Lex Luthor and being yeah. pushed around in a wheelchair. Yeah. But then they find out that he's been screwing over Eddie Guerrero. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. Kurt Angle. And then it goes to Paul Heyman. Then Paul... Gets drafted in the draft lottery for Raw. Yeah. Paul, who does continue to screw over Eddie Guerrero and try and assist Kurt Angle in the process. So the hypocrisy of it, you know, is there. And that was, so that was brilliant. And again, that was the time when you have Vincent Mann overrunning the guy who was in charge of WCW and the guy who was in charge of ECW. Mm-hmm. And the sort of surrealism again of like, God, wrestling's crazy. <laughs> Heyman goes. Because, again, Bischoff stuck around for a very long time. Yeah. And, again, he gave that consistency to it. And I liked that he could be involved in storylines, but also, when needed, just keeps the story functioning. And at times would even be somewhat neutral. I love the the, the storyline they did where Evolution, he was kind of pissed off at Evolution. So he made that stipulation that whoever won the Survivor Series match, each member of that team would get a week as the general manager so he could take some time off on holiday. Uh- <laughs> And that ended up screwing Evolution for four weeks. Yeah. So then you can count one week of each of those guys. We have Maven as general manager for one week, for God's sake. We did. So who was Paul Heyman replaced by after he quit, after being drawn in the draft lottery? Oh. See, there are people screaming at us now. Was that Teddy? That might have been when Teddy Long came in. Because Teddy was SmackDown GM for ages. Because they fought each other on Survivor Series one year. Mm-hmm. And I remember they both came out during a Royal Rumble where they realised that it was like half Raw and half SmackDown guys and they were fighting and then suddenly Mohammed Hassan came along yeah. and they all teamed up to throw him out because that's what wrestling was like in 2005. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, Teddy Long was there for so long. No, yeah. No pun intended. And I think he must have over... Like, he outlasted Eric Bischoff, obviously. 
Teddy Long wasn't in charge all the way through to John Laurinaitis's people power, was he? There yeah. must have been times when he came and went. Yeah, there were times he was injured, but he was never replaced. Didn't he have a heart attack during his wedding to Crystal? He did. Also, the Undertaker kidnapped him for a, like, and he was off telly for a few weeks, and then came back. Yeah, and they recreated the Stephanie McMahon thing. With yeah, <laughs> where to, Teddy? <laughs> So who replaced Bischoff on Raw then? That time? <sighs> Bischoff got fired and thrown into the dump truck. Yeah, by John Cena. That was well, no, it was Vince that threw him in the truck. Oh yeah, I uh, know. Cena F five him though. Uh, yeah, F would him. F five him would be able to turn for the yeah. bucks. We don't go to laptop after that, do we? No, God, no. That's years after. Who the hell was it after? This is like two thousand seven, and laptops not till twenty eleven. Yeah. No, oh, wasn't this guest host era? And they kind of acted yes. as GMs. That would be what it is, wasn't it? Yeah, guest GMs. Yeah. yeah. So you'd have Ben Roethlisberger, Sharon and Ozzy. Yeah, but you'd also have Ted DiBiase and Bret Hart and yeah. all those types. The Muppets. Yeah. At what point does fucking AJ Lee become... Because <laughs> then they started giving some really random people general manager roles. Remember, like, she's for, like the last few years of ECW, Tiffany was in charge yeah. of <laughs> ECW. Yeah, she's after Laptop. Well, we say Laptop, but Laptop was retconned to be Hornswoggle, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Well, that was just one of those ones where everyone was, like, really curious as to who it was and, like, it's one of those, another example of just Vince not really thinking things through. Anymore. It's one of Stone Cold's greatest ever beatdowns for how absurd it is, is when he beats down the laptop at WrestleMania and runs it over with the ATV. <laughs> That's a point as well. Obviously, we missed out Austin as like the co-GM Derek Bischoff. Yeah. And that went for quite a long time, didn't it? That uh, Survivor Series 2003. Three. Yeah. But then he came back almost immediately after as like a sheriff or something. Yeah. And that carried through to WrestleMania 20 where he refed the Brock Lesnar-Goldberg match. And that was built up as more Brock Lesnar versus Austin than it was uh, Brock Lesnar versus Goldberg. Yeah, it's weird because we sort of have like all this going on with all these different authority figures. But with the overarching figure of Vince as the authority figure. Yes, that's the problem. It's like... Uh... There's always... Because Austin has to convince Vince to do that match and Vince is like fine but you're reffing it yeah and it's one of those ones where like I said one of the great things about Jack Tunney was he was just in the background it was not him that the show was built around Uh, but then as time went on different figures would often come to dominate the stories and like Eric Bischoff did that at the start but then they could do it where for the best part of several months he's just there calling matches sometimes doing stuff in favour of the heels but not always Mm. and being just this consistency. And that's what I think I would want from my authority figures, is I want consistency. The problem with so many of the latter ones was, like, especially when it would be active wrestlers that would be doing it. Yeah. Or, um, oh, my God, who was the American announcer that was... The, Mike Adamley. Jeff Harvey. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, he was GM for a while. <laughs> and Regal became Raw GM for a bit, didn't he? Yeah. And that's when it just threw one King of the Ring, but then... And that's when he got popped for a drug violation. Because I think that derailed quite a big push for him at the time. Yeah, yeah. Again, that must have been one in between Bischoff and, and the guest host era as well. That must have been in between that as well. Yeah. But that's the thing. It just all starts to blur together. But then that's why the ones that you have the most affection for are the ones that just stayed the course and therefore couldn't be a part of it all the time. No one is going to be nostalgic for Baron Corbin as general manager. Was he? Remember, the authority literally blamed the bad ratings and how bad the show was on him. Yeah, was he GM? I don't know if he was GM. Maybe he was Commissioner or I don't know. Oh, yeah, Commissioner Corbin or uh, something like that. That, that, Yeah. It's one of those things where they just get so, they have to use different words suddenly. It's like how you had Corporate Kane when when they don't want to put Triple H and Steph on every week. So they had Kane be effective GM. Yeah. I'll say right now, when I was doing my Mount Rushmore, I disqualified Vince and all of the McMahons from authority figures because (sighs) they're almost like a step above that, you know? I didn't purely because one of them is seminal in like reinventing the whole thing. And it was him at, spoiler alert, everyone knows who I'm referring to now, so I'll I'll, I'll just lay off. But um, 
that person reinvented it all, really, I think. We're talking about Vince. Yeah, Vin- Vince versus Steve Austin was... Well, you say that, but Eric Bischoff had been the evil authority figure for several months before then on Nitro. Mm. So had he reinvented it? Well, he changed the game. Like, everyone remembers the, the amount of fondness we have for Vince versus Steve. It, phrasing it so weird as Vince versus Steve. <laughs> and my mate Steve, Vince versus Austin, was because he was the perfect foil to uh, Austin. Without Vince, it wouldn't have worked. <laughs> I think the reason that I don't go is because the I think that it's good that there's this idea of the authority figure having still a transient nature. Like, Vince ultimately has no one to answer to. And whether it be through term limits or whatever, if you would say with Jack Tunney or anything like that, there was always that sense that this is a finite period of time that this guy will be in charge and how does it affect the outlook? So you're looking, when you look for an authority figure uh, as your definition... Someone who's had that authority placed upon them. You're looking for power but not absolute power. Yeah, essentially. And, and they show it, sometimes they will show how the power corrupts certain guys and, and not others. Or how higher ups lean on them, because I think Teddy was lent on to screw over Undertaker in that whole CM Punk thing, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. And that was one of the best bits. I uh... We've not mentioned Vicky Guerrero as SmackDown GM. <laughs> that was, and that must have happened before the people power thing. Yeah. The problem with Vicky Guerrero was always a sense of, she was great at what she did. But there was always that sense of her sort of reading from the scripts, I felt, with her stuff. And it was like, the bad acting was what made the character get over. Yeah. Because they, whenever they tried her as a baby face, it was just crap. It was crap. So they lent into the skid. And look, let's face it. That's the re- there's a reason she was given that job. Yeah. And I'm not, I mean, I'm not mad at that reason because you want to make sure people are looked after. I'm mad at the people who abuse that situation for their own amusements. Yeah. Like Vince McMahon. Yeah. You know. But when the moment she became heel, there's a reason Edge specifically name-checked her in his retirement speech. And he's like, look, I'm literally thanking her for everything she did for me. And you are still... Bo-. She got the loudest boo in that retirement speech. There was that time where the people were booing so loudly that John Cena and her couldn't hear themselves. And they yeah. were actually laughing about... Like, they, they started laughing at the absurdity of it. Yeah. So, yeah, obviously it was over. But it's like... There's different layers to that booing that are, like, a problem for me. Yeah. But, you know, that's life. That's wrestling. But the one, the authority figure, I suppose, I I loved in the sense that they did have that idea of the responsibility weighing on their shoulders was the Mick Foley run. Mm. And it's because that year of 2000 WWF is like my favorite year of that promotion ever. And Commissioner Foley was a huge part of that. He would turn up in multiple angles on every show and it would never be tiresome. And he was always that sense that he was fair and he was sort of doing the right thing. I'd list him as the fun the right but fair teacher. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and then he like literally becomes like a detective mm. in that whole thing of figuring out who ran down Steve Austin whilst also getting attacked by Steve Austin during it. And it's one of the <laughs> few times where the fans are kind of booing against him because he's always... Austin always fights against authority. Yeah. The, and, you know, he's, you watch the first segment where he stuns Vince McMahon. Vince McMahon is not being unreasonable really you you have to work within the system yeah you're injured we're trying to protect you yeah (laughs) kind of like the herb dean thing we talked about recently just on a grander scale Uh, and vince gradually becoming more and more corrupt and angry Uh, but it's almost like austin's revealing the truth that was always underneath it Mm. whereas the truth underneath mick was he was always the most well-intentioned and he not through Austin's means of violence, but through Mick Foley's means of investigating it, was the guy that figured out that it was Rikishi that did it. Yeah. Maybe because Austin would be like, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. Ain't no way it's him. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I kind of loved it in a way. It was like, oh, I'll tell you who it's what. And everyone would like give a riddle yeah. for each person. Because it was always that case of where was Billy Gunn? And Billy Gunn had been out for ages, and he'd also been kicked out of DX in the time in between. So Billy would be like, it wouldn't hurt me to admit it, but it wasn't me. Yeah. But I will say that the person who did it had blonde hair. <laughs> Which also didn't make sense with the whole thing of everyone thinking The Rock did it. Yeah. But then... He could have worn a wig. 
Yeah, I guess. Or hired someone else to do it. Because that was the ultimate thing. Like, when the Rikishi thing didn't quite work out, they were like, uh... But Triple H told him to do it. Yeah. But Mick Foley could do those serious things with Triple H, like, very early on, when Triple H says, how about I beat it out of you? And he says, well, fine, everyone, every hit you give me, um, it's going to cost you five grand, and yeah. I'll book you in every bingo hall and, and all that sort of stuff. But then also, when they need to do the fun stuff with Edge and Christian, which was so, again, one of my highlights of that year... Mick Foley's being playful and amusing and they're doing just so many great bits backstage like Edge and Christian complaining about how The Rock gets his own locker room and they don't. He goes, hey guys, I'm a three times world champion. I never got my own locker room. But Mick, you wrestled in what you came yeah, me. You yeah, didn't need Mick, to you never changed. change your clothes. That's a fair point. <laughs> <laughs> my favourite one with that is when Christian's trying to fake being sick. And uh, they're chucking stuff into the toilet to like f- f- simulate vomiting, and he just peers over the cubicle. Mick, don't come in! I'm totally barfing right now. Oh, you guys are so like totally busted! <laughs> Holy Buster Palooza! <laughs> <laughs> One of my other favourite ones is uh, I think it might have been like a Sunday Night Heat episode. Yeah, and Christian decided he wanted to go for the light heavyweight title, and he says like. Well, the weight limit to that is 220 pounds. How much do you weigh? 218. You're lying. Damn it! Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, then doesn't, um, doesn't he struggle to make weight for one of his defences or something like that? Uh, no, it, it, well, he never wins it. He, that whole episode is him like, Mick Foley gives him a chicken suit to train him because that will get the sweat going. And he says... I'm not going to wear something stupid like that. Hey, let me tell you something. There was a man who had dreams of gold, Olympic gold, and he wore this chicken suit every time he worked out. Kurt? And so it sounds like he's making it up, and then later on Kurt Angle turns up and talks to them for something else, and then he just goes, Hey, my chicken suit! Because <laughs> then he like high-five Kurt, and then Kurt smiles his hand like, What has he <laughs> done in there? <laughs> yeah, because he, he drops water weight, because, um... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, toilet humour. <laughs> That's why I would say Mick Foley is my favourite of all of those ones. So I guess I'm kind of giving away a little bit of my Mount Rushmore. And I just kind of don't understand why they had to get rid of him. I mean, Regal did great stuff. And Regal, since then, like in NXT, he was like the perfect authority figure. Yeah. Obviously, the English accent helps with all that. Yeah. And, you know, it just became a meme of him going, War Games! The two sides of Regal, because the... Obviously, main roster GM Regal, he hammed it up, the Englishness, to like the nth degree. I think he had one end, uh, one episode, I remember, in his second run as GM, where he forced Lillian to sing God Save the Queen. And then John Cena interferes, he's like, no, nah, that song ain't no good. Um, sing some Aretha Franklin. And Lillian belts out our respect by Aretha straight away. Odd segment. <laughs> Well, they'd always do that, wouldn't they, with GMs, was they give them personalised offices. Yeah. And <laughs> Mick Foley's would be like a little mobile thing that he'd carry he'd go around with and there'd be like a... Wasn't it in like the um, boiler room? <laughs> yeah, sometimes he'd be in the boiler room, sometimes he'd have like... He had this little stuffed toy that was like going around in a tumble dryer once. <laughs> it was very odd. Whereas Regal would have it all laid out with like the Queen's painting, you know, like, yeah. the photo of the Queen and... Drink, drinking tea from teacup, you know, which obviously Jericho then pissed in. And yeah. then we found out for 20 years after that, Regal's been shoving his toothbrush up his ass. <laughs> uh, Teddy Long would always have, like, photos of Martin Luther King in his office. Yeah, Teddy Long loved, loved that sort of stuff. I think, did he, it was MLK. I think he had a Don King one, didn't he? Maybe. <laughs> yeah. And they would often do that with the guest hosts as well. They'd have their own personal office and yeah. like there'd be billboards for whatever film they're promoting or whatever. Or in uh, Bob Barker's case, just do your game show, Bob. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And those were fun. I, I A lot of people hate the guest host era. I didn't mind it, to be honest. Because it was like, it was obviously them going for that SNL thing. It's always that thing. Like, he always is buying, borrowing from other things. Like, the general manager is a notion from American sports yeah. where every club has. Because in America, like, we have it sort of... In England, we've always had a weird thing with management figures in, in our sporting situations where in, in England, the football manager would be, like, in charge of everything, yeah. transfers and all that stuff, whereas in most other countries, they were just, like, the coach of the players and would pick the teams, but they wouldn't necessarily be the person in charge of recruitment. He wouldn't be in charge of the youth developments mm. or anything like mm. that. Like, 
back in those days, I think football managers were even in charge of like how the pitch was maintained. Yeah, like it, it, it's basically in footballing terms, general manager. In America, we're talking soccer, like, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like the director of football for football mm. teams, really. But obviously, in America, they do have commissioners as well, yeah. and they're quite high-profile figures, aren't they? Like, uh, they're the ones that turn up at the um, the draft announcements to announce yeah. who's being drafted for what. Like the NBA, I, I sometimes watch like compilations of number one draft picks, and the current guy is this ri- this bald dude who's so tall that you kind of lose a grasp of how tall the basketball <laughs> players are. Like he's actually looming over a couple of the number one picks, which is quite surreal. It made more sense before him. He was like this short tubby bloke. Ah, <laughs> uh, you've made me think of the Mitchell and Webb sc- uh, sketch. The Giants of Ipswich will take on the Giants of Swindon, making them both seem normal sized. And I know that is it Roger Goodell, the NFL that commissioner. Is the man. Yep, he's yep. very high profile and also gets paid a lot of money because American sports are rackets. <laughs> They're cabals of evil people. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, Roger doesn't have... A lot of fans, uh, NFL fans, don't have a good opinion of Roger. What do you think an ideal authority figure would be? Would they be a heel, but like a heel that doesn't turn up all the time? Does it always need to be... Is the idea always needs to be that our heroes are fighting against something? Or do you want it to be a neutral or even maybe more babyface-leaning commissioner like Mick Foley or Jack Tunney. I watched so much of Raw when the authority were in their pomp. Mm. I How are you still alive? That this is it. I cannot abide heel GMs. You know how like you wanted a one year ban on excessive topes? Yeah, and reverse ranas and Canadian destroyers. I would happily put a one year ban on heel authority figures. I think just for the sake of functioning storylines, you should have someone that can make an announcement. I think if I was to run a promotion, I might go all the way back to the Jack Tunney model of having them not even be they're just an on screen figure that gets asked certain questions and makes announcements. Yeah. But is not there at the shows, is not providing constant commentary, and is only showing up like maybe every month or two on average to make a big decision or a big announcement or host a big contract signing. For all the mockery we do of World of Sport, they had that guy right at the start go, okay, I'm the person who books, that's it. And then you never really see him again because... No, that was Stu Bennett. He was one of the commentators. What was the old bloke they were talking to at the start? You're thinking of Johnny Saint in NXT UK. No, no, there was an old boy they talked to at the start of the first episode. I'm sure of it. What, was that like the New Year's Day special? Might be. Yes, sorry. Yeah, I'm conflating that. They had a GM on the New Year's Day special. Yeah, but again, like they introduced him in the first episode. You can't say they came and went. They were literally in one episode. Yeah. And then they had Stu Bennett be there throughout it all. But that was like... The one good episode, I thought, of the whole of World of Sport was the buzzer battle, mm. where they played up that it was under his authority, and so when things were going well, he would buzz new people in, and when things were going badly, he'd maybe let it yeah. just play for a while, and then SoCal Val like, pushed the button, because she was annoyed at him like <laughs> abusing his authority. Yeah. Yeah, oh. yeah that, that, that was her goodness. And um, to go back to my original point, or heel authority figures, there's a lot of them. There's very few good ones. Mm. Do you think it would be an idea for AEW to have an authority figure that's not Tony Khan? Because God knows when Tony Khan appears on TV, it's a mess of words that makes us talking over each other in a podcast, but it's one guy. (laughs) Oh, his Ring of Honor announcement, where he just shouts. He's so excited. There are about five different sentences going on at the same time, trying to fight their way out of his mouth during that announcement. His announcement of the renaming of the title was better, but he's still wild-eyed. I don't know with AEW, because you've got that awkward thing of... uh, Everyone knows that there's a lot of EVPs that are on the roster. Yeah. So, I kind of like it how it is, in a sense. I think it'd be tidier. If I was Tony Khan, I would want to be just like a non-presence on TV. Mm-hmm. And obviously, because it is this indulgence of a child's dream, we're not going to get that, I suppose. We've had a lot less Tony than I thought we might have, to be fair. Yes, that has been true. I've always feared that that he would get Dixie Cartered Mm. and just become so into it that they almost became a mark for themselves. And obviously, (sighs) 
in TNA you had that with Dixie Carter as an authority figure, but then she'd have m- m- numerous other authority figures, the Hulk Hogan. Bischoff. Eric Bischoff era, ending with Hulk Hogan walking away with Dixie Carter holding onto his heels Yeah, as he left. and oh. Just not a good look. <laughs> you had Jim Cornette working as the on-screen authority figure, and he'd talk about how he'd have heart attacks, having to run from the production truck to do a segment to come yeah. back to it. Cornette had also done authority figures in OVW, I think, and Ring of Honor as well. Mm. Ring of Honor occasionally would go into that stuff, but not usually. Most of the time, the authority figures were just the officials, the unknown... Like, Gabe Sapolsky was never a part of any of that stuff. Mm. Was never an on-screen talent. Would occasionally turn up when they really wanted to play up the shoot element of it, but almost like not even get acknowledged. Yeah. He'd never be on the microphone himself to, to say anything. And, uh, like, Carrie Silkin was like a visual guy, but he was almost like a spont, like a, like a well-wisher. Yeah. You know, the financier that gives the, the, the awards guys with like, like gives Christopher Daniels the original Ring of Honor world title when he finally wins it. Yeah. And those sort of actions. And, like, Carrie Silkin's one of the few guys that, like, next to no one has any bad words to say about. And he has very few bad words to say about anyone else. So that shows you how much of a shit Ric Flair was to him. (laughs) Yeah, I just... He's never going to go away. No. I was kind of surprised they didn't just make William Regal the authority figure of AEW immediately. And I'm surprised now that he's back at NXT that he has yet to be put back in that position. Well, uh, well, that's the whole NXT. They, they, They won't do that because they don't want... NXT 2.0, it got rebranded. They're not going to put Regal back in. They're just not. I wouldn't be surprised if they do. It won't be for years. They really want this rebrand to work because in their head, it's like, right, NXT... And they know to an extent that NXT 1's greatest successes were all imports. They don't want to import anymore. They really want NXT 2.0 to show that they can properly home-grow. But as an NXT 2.0 been removed anyway, and they've gone to a golden white version. So we're, we're, if we're in anything now, we're in 3.0. Yeah. And doesn't Shawn Michaels, if anyone, make those authority announcements? Shawn is the now? authority figure on screen now. But as is well. he given like the title of that? Yeah, yeah. Well, you've seen him recently deal with Roxanne Perez and Grayson Waller trying to bait him into having a match with him, and then um, Shawn being defended by a champion of NXT, Johnny Gargano, returning to NXT. But yeah, it, Sean is acknowledged as the guy who makes the decisions. He hasn't been given, like, the general manager title, but he he is acknowledged that that's who he is. Well, maybe Triple H is waiting to put Regal in as the authority figure, either for Raw or SmackDown or both. Mm, well, they don't have one. Yeah, they haven't had one for quite a while now. And you had Triple H saying this booking thing isn't... Easy. Yeah. So they acknowledge, obviously, on screen that Triple H can make these matches. But, like you say, he hasn't deferred that responsibility. And again, that plot point. I guess, well, it's been it's been Adam Pearce, hasn't it, really? Adam, yeah, Adam Pearce is... Um, I don't, he hasn't been given... Gen- I don't know if his title is general manager, though. He's just the announcer, like, spokesperson, almost. No, because he can, he can make matches himself. Yeah. Like, it was a snap decision he made recently to make the Seamus McIntyre Gunther triple threat. Yeah. There seems to be this general sense that, like, all officials have a certain amount of authority. Like, when Becky Lynch came in for Lana, it was just her just berating Finley until he finally just... (laughs) Fine! Alright! I've I've been yelled at by Irish women to know that I need to let them have what they want. (laughs) Dave loves to... I hate Dave Finley, but... uh, Not 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 Becky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) He won't. He's not going to go. He's not going to go. He's not that mad. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it seems inevitable that it will come back at some point. Mm. But yeah, it seems like we're, we're pretty low on authority figures. It's actually funny, the last episode we would have had, if there's no five stars in between, was us talking about the Lucha Underground match. And Dario Cueto's character seems like a fascinating... Like, he's an authority figure, but he's actually like a shady criminal One. mob lord. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what Lucha Underground is like, a part of his business engagements. But he works so well that he's now... Basically playing the same character but with a different name in Major League Wrestling, MLW. Yeah. That's another good one. If Maybe if we'd have watched Lucha Underground, he would have been a, 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 Up there. a Mount Rushmore contender. Yeah. I mean, I think for that reason, I have him down with one of my honourable mentions, just because it was so different, but in a yeah. good way. Yeah. Well, he was just an actor. Yeah. He was nothing to do with wrestling. So again, he can do that stuff that, like, when it's suddenly page here... Or anything yeah. like that. It's oh, not, well, we had, like, we, oh, we forgot about GM Page. 
Yeah, GM Page. Then after, because she replaced Daniel Bryan. Yeah. After Page, who was it? I can't remember. They, they're so interchangeable. It all bleeds into each other. Like, what? When was it that Sonya Deville took over as well? And she was working with Adam Pearce, wasn't she? Yeah, she, she was technically like Pearce's second in command, but would undermine him a lot and and had more heelish tendencies than Pearce did. I just never get the logic of why would you give it to someone who's an active wrestler? I mean, to be fair to Sonya Deville, she'd lost a lose-or-leave SmackDown match, hadn't she, to Mandy Rose? So that does kind of make sense, but just giving it to someone who's like... yeah. A 26-year-old AJ Lee. I was just like, why would anyone ever make someone mm. like that an authority? It needs to be someone that has that present yeah. or has that title with the McMahons. She's uh, never returned to active competition, Sonya, which is weird. If you were to say you had to make someone... If you had to make someone that's working with an AEW right now, either backstage or on screen, the authority figure of AEW, who would you do? I've got the obvious answer right now in my head. Uh, I like Pat Buck. Okay. But he's just like a no. He's got like Adam Pearce. He's just a guy who never made it as a wrestler. I don't want an established guy. I, I, I don't want that Sherry one for AEW. I want something. I want my Jack Tunney. And I think Pat Buck could be my Jack Tunney. I think I have a much better Jack Tunney than your Jack Tunney. Okay. Go on. JR. Oh, that'd be perfect. Get him off the commentary desk. And I, lo- I, I, I will always love JR as a commentator. But it needs to be something else now, yeah. Once every month or so, like if you're doing the Jerry Lawler angle of the terrible heel walking away thinking they finally got one up and then just suddenly... He has that authority. That's the thing. I think you've got to play up to what JR presents, which is authority which is what he was you know he was literally in charge of the wrestlers during the like most prosperous years of wrestling and then john laurenitis came in and what the fuck mm. happened after that laurenitis is another example of a guy who's not very good on screen but because of that it kind of like the vicky guerrero thing it almost plays into it yeah but jim ross would just be perfect again just bring him in every once in a while giving decrees again doesn't have to be on stage but and no one's gonna boo jr no so you don't have to worry about that. That's true. I don't. I don't know why I didn't think of it. I think because I kind of still like Jr. doing those sit-down interviews. Well, he can still do that as a president in a way. You know. I don't know if he could. Maybe less so, but it still could work. I always said that what I would do with Jr. is like have him almost be like an over, like above it all commentator of the events. Yeah. And like maybe once every month, just have Jr.'s corner. Where you have him just pontificating about things he's seen in his life, things he's experienced, and tying it into various storylines yeah. in wrestle in in the promotion at the time, and maybe referencing historical figures from his times in Oklahoma and anywhere yeah. else. And They've so dropped forth. technique with Taz recently. You've made me think of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Taz could be a good guy to replace him as the sit-down interview, or Tony Schiavone. Yeah. You've got Renee now. Use Renee. Renee's great. Like Unfiltered was a banger on the WWE Network. You could have Shivani as the authority figure as well. You know, we did have him essentially do that for Tony Khan's decree at the end. He's of- shit eating <laughs> grin when he says MJF's got <laughs> overtime. I loved it. I, I love, but, yeah. but I love the fact because he's only delivering bad news for someone he doesn't like it's not him delivering that 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 works it keeps it protects tony it was like non-crooked because obviously tony khan's made that decision because he wants he wants a definitive winner and americans hate drawing they hate drawing so that's why it was a popular decision and a heel could have said that just the same i guess yeah but it wouldn't have worked if it's like to screw over mjf well you can have a hit you, you don't have no and that's a trope I don't like. Not all heels have to get on. Oh, yeah. And that was the thing. Like I said, Eric Bischoff got pissed off at Triple H, so kind of screwed over Revolution for his own amusement. For yeah, because Triple H had too much of a power trip and was stepping on his toes. So he was like, nah, sod this. Yeah. Well, I think we've talked this through. It's, it's never going to go away. Although, like we say, at the moment, it's fairly died down. But it's just, it's such an easy plot point, even if you just need it for a short-term thing and then it just becomes long-term. It's a framing device, really, isn't it? Like I said, I think the best ones are the ones that exude authority, but not without overwhelming everything around them. Mm. Like the authority did, like sometimes Vince McMahon would. Any McMahon would in those positions. So, let's take a trip now to Mount Rushmore. Simon, do you want to go first? 
Yeah, now, using your parameter, I'm going to do an honourable mention first, because I am going to try and apply your parameters to it, so we're like, you know, we're picking from the same stock. Before we establish those parameters within this episode, I did have Vince McMahon down, because as an on, just purely in the basic term of the word, as an on-screen authority figure, that feud with Steve Austin did change things. And that ultimately, I think, is why we have such a big pool to pick from because if that didn't work would we be even talking about this as a topic now so he has to be mentioned dario cueto uh for the reasons we alluded to earlier i I agree with lorkin if we'd both of us had watched more lucha underground there's a probably a strong chance he'd have snuck in to our our rushmores so i want to give those two guys a shout out on to my actual list first one on my list william regal do you have a favorite era Regal? i do black and gold nxt because he was just fair man. And everyone understood his decisions until Samoa Joe came along. And that was and Samoa Joe being the one guy who was just like, nah, I ain't going along with what you say. <laughs> Gold. Oh, Samoa Joe. Class. And he also had that, you know, he has that weight and that size and that a rep. You didn't mess with Regal. Mm. There was one, I can't remember one time in AEW, obviously he he wasn't an authority figure, but he just calmly gets the brass knuckles out of his pocket. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> come on now. Yeah. Uh, he's also this figure that clearly like every wrestler seems to respect greatly. Yeah. Like he just has that aura uh, to him, to this generation of wrestlers. I suppose maybe partly because he's the guy that made Brian Danielson maybe the best wrestler of this century. Yeah. And, and like those who love wrestling, love wrestling. And, and he's, he's of that purest mm. of Matt Bay skills. And he wasn't maybe recognized in his own time for how good he was yeah. in the ring or given the opportunities or was just willing to be the fool. And because he was so good at that and these one or two shots at the big time coincided with him making his own mistakes. And I do also like with Regal's character, there's always that sense of a regret of a life not necessarily lived to the fullest or a life where he's done many bad things and he's sort of atoning for it, but not atoning mm. for it at the same time. You don't and... want a white knight as a teacher. You don't want someone with like who, whose armour hasn't been tested. He's a man who's lived a life and has scars to prove it. Yeah, but those are the best authority figures. But also... A man aware of his own mortality like he was during the whole of that final run with Cesaro and his run in FCW with William Reed, with uh, John Moxley as well. Yeah, trying to make peace with himself. But he was also, he was a lot of fun. Like, there continued to be fun with the com- with the commissioner role taking over from as beloved a figure as Mick Foley. Mm. Like his Duchess of Queensbury rule. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant. Wasn't it Marquis, not Duchess? No, well, that's the thing. It's the Marquis is the boxing, ah, but for this reason, wrestling, to it was avoid Duchess. Co- to avoid copyright, probably. Because they literally had a woman come out in, like, 18th century. Yeah. <laughs> Genius. My second is Eric Bischoff. Now, I haven't watched a lot of WCW, so I'm making my decisions off of his Raw run. And making the decisions in spite of his Impact run. Yeah. But, no, I, I like him being, like, just an arrogant knobhead. <laughs> Yeah. There were very few good heel authority figures. Eric was one during his raw time. What was your favourite Bischoff look? The Kendall look? The I'm getting too old for this shit in later years of WCW when you realise just how grey he actually was look? His back with the black hair. Back in black. Back in black. But also... Or or is a or is Boogie Nights Burt Reynolds look? That was my personal Ah, oh, no. Back in black. L- long hair. Like, yep. Yeah. I'm back, baby. Number three, he's been on other Rushmore's, but, well, because of his talents, including in this role, I can't not include him, Paul Heyman. We didn't talk about Todd Gordon, who was also, like, the president figure to Heyman's backstage Mm. guy, who was, like, the commissioner of ECW, and had owned ECW before... Heyman bought it from him, then eventually got kicked out when it was turned out he was conspiring against WCW to get WCW to sign loads of their talent. He had that whole storyline with Bill Alfonso that ended up being paid off with Taz choking out Todd Gordon when they had their match. Yeah. It was just weird, this like bald middle-aged man having to overturn uh, Bill Alfonso to allow Axel Rotten and Ian Rotten to fight each other with glass (laughs) attached to their gloves. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> ah, 
that this like local jeweler was really into bloody violence. <laughs> violence <laughs> and affordable wedding rings, but mainly violence. <laughs> so we're talking. Well, we're basically just talking Heyman because he sort of was authority in ECW, but very rarely came yeah. out in the original ECW. He was actually more on screen during the WWE ECW SmackDown era Heyman. But SmackDown era Heyman. WWE CW Heyman, I'm not touching. For the same reason I'm not touching uh, Bischoff's Impact Run. It just wasn't good. Last but not least, it is Mick Foley. Because you, under your parameters, you're saying someone who does get given power, but then is annoyed with having to answer to a higher one. And when he was Steph's second in command, he was really good in that role of, look, I want to give everyone a chance, but I'm being like lent on here and he's it's we've all seen it in every workplace there's just someone who uh doesn't agree with like a ruling in the system from management and tries to like eke away past it it's it's mr incredible speaking to the old lady we had three matching ones but one of them was in my honorable mentions and that's william regal oh okay so i'm bringing in one of the honorable mentions into my mount rushmore so that we can still have three and one set one so that would be teddy long I do think he was just a voice of consistency and he became a cliche, you know, like the fact that people still affect, get affectionate when he comes out and says, we're going to make this a tag team match player. <laughs> but it just, it kept things, like I said, simple and efficient. And also you don't rarely get to see, especially in wrestling, a, a non-white person as a figure of authority and it's completely respected by everyone within the Maybe that's system. why he had the uh, pictures of like black figures in his office. Oh, well, obviously that's why he had. What, what, why else did you think he did that? <laughs> Teddy Long is uh, an enigma. Uh, apparently, like when he does like one-off appearances, he still insists to be paid in cash. <laughs> <laughs> He's one of the old boys. <laughs> He's yeah. old school. The amount of shit he will have had to have dealt with yeah. over the years. And that he was so adaptable. He was ref, he was manager. He was, you know, he had that fantastically brief run, the white boy challenge with Rodney Mack. <laughs> and one of my favorite little WWE playing up to its own cliches was him taking Devon aside and saying, why is it always you that's got to get the tables? <laughs> <laughs> and that plays up into the match. Like Bubba pushes Devon. He goes, Devon! And Teddy Long gets up on the apron and says, see what I mean? <laughs> this is exactly I mean? what Devon I'm talking kind of, about. And Devon is kind of conflicted and Bubba's like proper white guy not getting what he's done wrong. Going, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's political correctness gone mad. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I should have had Teddy in my honourable mentions. I, do, I, I, I love Teddy Long. So I'm putting Teddy Long and I'm putting Jack Tunney in because like I said, if I was to run a wrestling promotion, the Jack Tunney model of authority figure would probably be what I would go with. And it was like the one that's had the longest life. Like I said, it was like a 10 year run. Yeah. I think they like genuinely pissed Vince off in some business situation. And that's why like he's never even been put in the Hall of Fame, which you would have thought would be a A lock in really. Same with the Hebners. Like the Hebners turns out have been like nicking merch Mm. and selling it off the, on the off. Cause again, you would think Earl or Dave Hebner would be a decent chance for a Hall of Fame induction. If any referee was to get it. Considering what Earl like put himself through that night in uh, 97. I didn't want it to be a pure WWE run. Mm. And I did want to kind of look back when there were, like I said, you know, you're going back to like the Starcade 83 match being announced by just Bob Geigel very coldly reading off of a piece of paper. And also we could have gone really crazy and gone with Herb Abrams. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't go there. But what I am going to do with someone who was like a, he was the authority, he was actually genuinely the owner of the territory, but he was also like the, the rule maker and boy did he exude authority and he was also like the voice of the promotion all the way through. And then during his run in a major national promotion, it didn't quite work out, but when you ever saw him on TV, he was always articulate and thoughtful and genuinely put across the sense of a love of old school wrestling. You got his ideology and his thinking behind everything. And that is Bill Watts. Ah. For both his run in Mid-South and his brief run in WCW in 1992. Yeah. Which is a time of, like, some great stuff and some not-so-great stuff. And a lot of wrestlers miserable at what he was up to. Mm. And it's so... he's Again, he's a man of such weird dichotomies. Like, he was the first guy to really push prominently black wrestlers was like he made junkyard dog the top star of his promotion he made ron simmons the first ever world champion in wcw but then he also in one interview said that the basically saying oh they should have let segregation stay 
because <laughs> businesses have the right to do what they want. Oh, Bill. Like, what? how can you be, like, both, <laughs> you know, what is going on here? <laughs> that That's taking, like, freedom of choice. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. I dread to think what he thinks of, like, a... Uh, gay birthday cakes <laughs> so for me now it's a choice between mick foley or eric bischoff mick foley is the one i have the most affection for for my time with wrestling and just so many great things like him having commissioner on his shirt but it was too long so he had to have the nerve <laughs> down. it was just such a fun time and like after he'd been so serious with his cactus jack run then coming back three months later with his shaved head and with it, and all the funny sketches, and it, like I said, it was the best time for. So I also associated with the best time of like WWF storyline writing and everything when they had a like that head writer who actually planned things out on a board and then just basically yeah. got called a massive nerd. <laughs> <laughs> but they like they brought in a proper good TV writer and then got annoyed at him bringing in trying to bring in the best practices of TV writing. Well, the whole right creative process. Yeah, well, I mean, I've read Brian Gerwitz's book and. Oh, yeah. If Vince just doesn't like you, like Vince can turn on you in like a second. We should start a wrestling book club. We should. That's another episode for the future. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so it's, it's so it's between that and Bischoff, and I think even though like his impact run goes against it, I think I'm gonna have to go with Bischoff as the definitive one because he was the one that invented the heel authority figure. Hmm. And he came to WWF, the thing that we never thought would happen. And it's still one of the most memorable moments in Raw history. And it was like one of the, like, Vince was appearing on SmackDown like loads during that time. But he basically never really bothered with Raw for the most part. Because Bischoff exuded that authority. He could be like the focus of the storylines in the early days. Then he could pull back and just be the guy that's backstage. He did the. He, he basically risked his life going into the Hammerstein ballroom for the easy one night stand reunion he took all the shit that vince gave him and he came out not smelling of garbage basically yeah he even brought in eugene as his nephew. I, oh i forgot that eugene was his nephew all the stuff he did with steve austin he managed to make it work for a number of years and it again like vince just being so fly by night and if you look at it in comparison to what was going on in smackdown he was this figure of consistency yeah so for all those reasons i've got to go with bischoff and he was the guy that came closest to defeating Vince and he had to play within the system in a way that Vince never had to. Yeah. It's almost like someone should write a movie script about it. <laughs> almost, almost. Yeah, yeah. Another one of those thwarted ambitions. But anyway, after all that, we're finally at the end of this run and, and it's been fun to do another Let Me Tell You Something. So the plan is to, we are going to, the next one of these that won't be a match of the week or a melts of five star will be Silver Screen Visions where we talk about the wrestler. Yep. And then the next Silver Screen Visions after that will be Succession, I suppose, if we can get it done over the next 10 weeks or so. For my next pick, we're going to go back to a promotion that I picked once before, I think. Unless this was yours before, I can't remember. We're going to go back to CZW, Combat Zone Wrestling. But instead of it being a death match, it's going to be a little bit of indie action from the mid-2000s with a tag team that, by the time this goes out, may very well have main evented one night of WrestleMania, but we're going to see them in their original guises of Kevin Steen and El Generico against Super Dragon and AEW's own lead commentator, Excalibur. Oh, yes. Yes, I'm down for this. You would just look at that and think... Really? Two WrestleMania main eventers came out of this? <laughs> and the lead commentator of the second biggest promotion in wrestling? Doesn't Super Dragon book, help book PWG as well? Yeah, he was one of the guys that owns it and runs it. But Like um, Excalibur does as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how hands-on he's been in recent years. But, yeah. But Super Dragon was, wow. I mean, some of the ways that he behaved, you were kind of like... How is this guy not hated by everyone? <laughs> but you'll you'll see some of that in this. And just like the ultimate in mid noughties indie throw fucking everything at the wall. Like, you want moves, you got them. Yeah, baby. And there's nothing to say at this point except that Simon, if people want to get in touch with you with other figures of authority that you should follow, 
How can they do so? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I am so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of promotions where Eric Bischoff has been an authority figure. My name's Lorcan Munnell. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N at the start and the end of authoritarian. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, letterbox. If you put in that gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank God we never talked about Vince Russo in WCW. And thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great time. Until the next time. there. Two of you can take that bed area. Hey! Don or take over that station. What's going on? This department's being absorbed by Homeland Security. Homeland Security? Look, your little game of going over people's heads is over. You can still work, but from now on you answer to me. You got that? Excuse me, who's in charge here? I am. Yeah, well not anymore you're not. This department has just been assigned to the FBI. That's outrageous! On whose order? On order of the Secretary of Defense. You had your shot, now I'm in charge. Not anymore, you're not. Orders just came down from Central. They want ATF handling this on all fronts. All right, people, from now on, you're answering to me. Not anymore, they're not. Orders from the President. He wants this handled by his staff personally. Now Nelson is in charge. Not anymore, I'm not.